saw, I had a dream last night. <laughs> Chris Westhoff's been helping me process it. I was like, what's going on? I had this dream. It was the same dream I had about four or five months ago. It was just kind of a weird thing. And I thought, oh, that's kind of, it must be significant. And in the dream, um, I'm going to this, like, beach. And there's these stands on the beach where there's a bunch of people sitting. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm kind of scouting out um, the waves like, to go get in the water. And when I get there, the waves are, like, terrifyingly big. <laughs> I mean, like, have you ever seen those waves off of Portugal? Oh, if you want to see the, lar- the largest waves in the world, they're like average at 60 feet, you know, and it's just one of those things where you realize you're not in control anymore, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so it was in this dream, these waves just crashing, it was like an explosion every time it came down, and I initially wanted to get in the water, <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if this is right, and Chris, Chris had been having similar uh, prophetic visions and even uh, over for our 24-7 leadership pathway folks had had a similar vision. And it's this idea that how do you, does anybody know, okay, we're in Oklahoma, so we don't have a lot of waves at Lake Tankiller or Eufaula or any of this. But uh, my watch just found leadership pathway on Siri, so whatever. Um, How do you get through the big waves? Yeah, you go under, you go deep. You go deep. Um, And if if these waves are some of these these things that are just crashing in the world, in our culture, if you you try to fight waves, you are going to get crushed. You got to go deep. You got to go deep. And I think, what I believe the Lord is calling us to do is go deep with Him but in ways we never have before. Because for some of us, and it's even with the series of these different ways of knowing God, we can get used to the one way we're really good at knowing God, but Jesus is really immense. (laughs) And, And just imagine if Jesus were standing here, he's facing here, and some of us see Jesus from over at this vantage point, and some of us, Jesus here, you know? And we... We're all looking at Jesus, but we're just seeing different things about him. And he wants to reveal himself wholly to us. So it requires a full life engagement emotionally, uh, relationally, with our brains. And some of the t- stuff I've been teaching, I know it takes a little bit more brain power. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Did you know it's okay if you leave church not feeling better? See, Jesus isn't nearly as interested in making us feel better as he is in making us his disciples. And the benefit, the side benefit over time is we enter into joy, which isn't always the same thing as feeling better, and robust, alive, meaningful lives. But sometimes Jesus, the way he does that, he takes us straight into the pain. Sometimes he does it. Sometimes he gives us a pill. And we, you know, he's always going to relieve us. The question we can say, can I trust him? Can I trust him? Is he so good to me that, that what he's going to do in me on the other side of this momentary pain is so for my healing. It's so for my restoration that I don't like this, but I'll trust you anyway. 
Like, for instance, this is not the sermon I was going to give, but I'm like, Lord, I don't want to be pounded by the fear of man. And so you know how he's helping me? He's letting people reject me. <laughs> like, right, no, Jesus, I want to do it like a video game, right? Where my guy dies, but I just, he respawns all the time, you know, I just don't feel anything. And he's like, oh, honey, I love you. I love you, son. But the only way you get, get past this is go through it. No, it's okay, man. And I start realizing, oh, we're all just scared anyway. We're all just scared and just saying stuff. We don't know what we're talking about. None of us knows what's going on. But Jesus does, and I can trust him. And, 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 and so, anyway, we're asking the question, how do I know what's true? And the reason it, it, we're doing that is the truth can be hard to find. We were given so many other narratives. They're being shouted at us. I don't even know if, I I don't know if in human history more messages have come to one human ever between your phone, you know what I mean? Every screen you have, all the advertising. I mean, the amount of messages we have to filter out is is staggering. And then you think about it, even when you're filtering them out, they kind of leave a residue at times, don't they? So that even the truth smells a little bit like that. It's like, I heard the illustration. You ever, you ever drank water out of a, like a, a plastic cup that had been sitting there for a while? You can kind of taste the plastic a little bit, right? You're like, it's still water, but... Right? And that's kind of like truth in our culture on a broken planet. Truth can be hard to find. It can also masquerade. Lies can masquerade as the truth. But the thing is, it's so important that we know what's true is because it decides everything about our lives. We base our lives, we live our lives, we make daily decisions based on what we think is true. If you just start thinking about it, I mean, it's all, you know, I mean, you think that, you know, that key is going to turn your car on. Because if you thought, yeah, that's just not true. All right, well, I guess you're walking home. Right? And so, so and that goes from the micro to the macro. So truth determines how we live, so it's so critical. We're, we're suggesting, actually, we're declaring and believe that Jesus himself is the truth. It's not just an idea. Truth's not an idea. It's a person. And so that the question becomes, how do I know Jesus? If I want to know what's true, how do I know this person, Jesus? And, and so I'm talking about four different ways we know a person and that we can know this person, Jesus. And... Uh, It's so critical we figure this out, friends. It's so critical we figure this out. And I've said this over and over again. I'll just keep on saying it because I feel like the Lord in the last two years has been really kind to us to give us kind of this diagnosis of Western and American Christianity. We've gotten really tested in the last two years and we've acted a bit crazy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and, and what I feel like the Lord in his great kindness has said, here's some spots we need some growth. <laughs> and a huge one is to know how to discern what is true. How do I know what is really Jesus and what is not? How do I know what is really Jesus and what is not? And it's not just based on who the most popular or famous person is. We're in a weird culture that believes celebrity is the same thing as authority. That is devastatingly wrong. 
Adolf Hitler was known by all. You, you see what I'm saying? That's just, it, Hitler's always a, an eventual analogy. <laughs> you always win with Hitler. You know, <laughs> go to the extreme. Celebrity doesn't mean authority. Jesus eschewed celebrity constantly. He said, don't tell anybody I did all this. <laughs> um, we got to know, guys, how to know what's true, how to know what's really Jesus, and what, what's the plastic taste. That doesn't taste like Jesus to me. But I can tell you why. Okay, so four ways we know Jesus. Reason is this idea of thinking about Jesus and making sense of the things he said. And, and, and then we've got experiencing Jesus, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, of encountering the person of Jesus himself. How can we actually do that? Scripture we talked about last week with the words of Jesus and tradition, which we're going to talk about today, which is, well, I'll talk about it today. And look at that acronym. Isn't that awesome? REST. Is that the greatest acronym in history? Maybe you've got to be 50 years old to appreciate it like I do. Oh, REST. Thank you, Jesus, for REST. That's how I can know Jesus, REST. So how do we know Jesus? How do we know Jesus? Thank you. All right. So, but there, these aren't all equal in importance. We said scripture is the most important one. We talked about it last week at great length. And it really comes down to the best way to know a person is to hear their words. It's the best way we can know what's going on in their skull and in their heart is for them to say words to us. Tradition's the next one. And I like to put experience and reason kind of on the same, same uh, level. Not everyone does that, but that's kind of what I think. So, this, today we're going to talk about tradition. What is it? How does it work? Why is it so important? And what are its limits if that's all you have? And so here we go. Lord, help us to take us deep, Lord. Take us deep. We can't do it ourselves. Thank you that the deck is stacked in our favor. We've got the smartest coach, the most loving coach, who knows everything about us inside out. You know exactly what we need. And you're the one leading us. And all we got to do is say yes and obey. You start the whole thing. We don't got to figure our lives out. You're the one building our lives. We are your handiwork. And so thank you for doing that right now, Jesus. Amen. So what is tradition? Uh, really, the simplest way, if, if, <laughs> I guess if you really wanted to just walk out now, you could say it's other people. And then I'll talk a lot about how it's other people. That's what this whole message is going to be. All right? It's other people. It's their knowing of Jesus. Their encounter with Jesus. Their knowledge of Jesus that, that the, the second most important way I can know who Jesus is, is through you. Is through you. Now here's the crazy thing about it, what it means. When you've been baptized, when you've entered the family of God, you all of a sudden have a huge history. You have a family that predates you. Because when we talk about tradition, not only is it other people's knowing of Jesus, it's other people's knowing of Jesus for the last 2,000 years. Think of how powerful that is. You're all of a sudden pulled up into a family with history and tradition and knowledge of Jesus, experience of Jesus in virtually every place on the earth, at every time period in the last 2,000 years. So that's what we mean by tradition. In and, and Paul talks about tradition this way. Think about this for a second. This is crazy. He's talking about elders. They leave God's household. And he talks about the church. He says the church of the living God, the church herself 
is the pillar and foundation of the truth. But I thought the Bible was. He said the church is the foundation of the truth. What does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about it. How does that work that the church is the foundation of the truth? Well, we, we've all heard the word tradition in a negative sense. Have you guys heard of tradition said in, in, in a negative way? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And, and it makes sense because it happens in the scriptures. There is negative tradition. So Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus from Jerusalem, ask, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat, said every mom forever, Right? This had to do with ritual purity. They didn't quite know about germs then, okay? So Jesus replied, well, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares uh, that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. See, Jesus is affirming for us right here that Scripture always trumps tradition. Okay, so Jesus said, Scripture trumps tradition. And tradition can be negative. It can be negative. But it also can be very positive. This is fascinating. So we see in Acts 2.42... That, that the, the early Christians devoted themselves to the Bible. What was the Bible for the early church? This is the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. There was no Bible at this time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Think about this for a second, okay? This is going to go somewhere in a minute. Then Paul says this, to the Corinthians, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. What's he talking about? And then Paul goes on in, in that chapter, he starts talking about communion, where he got, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He says to the Thessalonians, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. He goes on to say, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from every brother or sister who leads a disorderly life and not one in accordance with the tradition which you received from us. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about this moment where he, where he says to Timothy, Anything you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to reliable people, who will also be qualified to teach others. You see four generations here. For Paul, to Timothy, to others, to others. Tradition is this passing on of the knowledge or knowing of Jesus to other people, both with us and from generation to generation. It has to happen. And I'll do this by showing you a little history of tradition. I will say this. This was a great idea when I conceived it in my head. It was a horrible idea to actually build it out yesterday. So, but that's just what it was. So, whatever. I spent way too much time on this. 
way too much time. Um, so see those numbers? Those are all the centuries. That's a timeline since Jesus. Okay, so there's 20 centuries that have happened. Make sense? 2,000 years. So each one of those is about 100 years. Make sense? All right. So this is a little church history because it, it'll make sense here in a minute. So for the first uh, 1,054 years, there was just one church on the earth. Do you know that? For actually about more than half of our history, it was just one church. And then about uh, 1054, we had a split between what's now Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Then Eastern Orthodox kind of stayed intact. There's some split-offs that I actually don't know much about, which I didn't put it on there. Then um, about 500 years later, the Roman Catholic Church had a little hullabaloo going on. And we had something called the Protestant Reformation that was pro- protesting where the church was at at the time. And so what split out of that is about 1517, the 1500s. More, there was more than just these three, but I just was too tired to put them all out. And there's like about a thousand. I, li, I'm not joking when I say literally about a thousand. Um, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican, right? And then, so that's about, that's about 500 years ago. Then, then the Lutherans have continued along. The Reformed have continued along. Anglicans. Then in the 1700s, this crazy guy popped up named John Wesley. Who, who just started doing all this really intense stuff of following Jesus and creating... He created... He's the first D-groups guy, by the way. For real. Well, the whole idea of D-groups was from Wesley. Um, and then... So this whole Wesley tradition that became Methodist, Wesleyan, there's all kinds of Wesleyan stuff. And then out of the Wesleyans, about a hundred years ago, um, came this little offshoot called Pentecostals. About 1904, 1906, had stuff going on in Los Angeles, and then also in Kansas, this stuff going on. It was about 100 years ago. And then about 40, 50 years ago, there was another little offshoot called the Independent Charismatic Movement. Now, the Charismatic Movement actually went across all the different traditions, but the independence is, it's, it's the stream we're in. Like an independent church has got a charismatic leaning. And then there is this seismic moment um, about 20, 20 years ago, where Believer's Church came into existence. <laughs> the ground shook. Now, I want you to see how the lines of history go out. Look at the bottom right corner. Look very closely. I'm going to show you our history. Ready? Look closely. Here's our history. There it goes. <laughs> and what I'm trying to show you is this is our spot. If you just want to do the math, we are 1% of church history. We are 1% of people experiencing Jesus on the earth. Another way of saying it is 99% of what Jesus has done had nothing to do with us. Ninety-nine of what God has done on the earth happened before we were even here. So the purpose of this exercise is to properly locate us in history. We don't know much. Okay, so here's what I mean that uh, how how the script how this how tradition works across all of this because we're all coming from the same tree. We're all coming from the same root system. Well, for about the first man, it always looks cleaner on the on the uh, 
screen, on my screen than that. Can you read that? Old tradition, thank you. Did you know for like the first 50 years or so, there was no New Testament? There, there, nothing was written down. The earliest thing we have is in about the year 49 AD when um, Paul wrote his first letter to the Galatians. We didn't have the Gospels to probably about the 60s or so. So when Paul says, I'm passing stuff down, he's literally passing on the witness of the Scriptures. What we call the New Testament. If you've never heard this before, this is not like controversial at all. Everybody, it's just kind of just stuff. This is kind of not hard to show. And then for about the next 50 years, the New Testament is written. So starting with Paul's letters are kind of the earliest stuff. Then we start with the Gospels. And pretty much we think the latest thing would be John and or the Apocalypse of John. So then right there in that little 50-year period, that the last half of the first century is when the New Testament was written. So can you see how important this, this 100 years was of what we call tradition? Of people telling the stories that I heard from Peter about what Jesus did. And pe- repeating them so many times that... By the way, people are like, well, that means we must not remember anything. You can, your brain can do way more than we do with our brains, just so you know. There's stories of guys who've gone from, this is for missionaries, there would be a guy who'd walk a day in a village to hear Bible stories, reading of the Bible, walk back to the village, the, uh, the missionary was wondering, what are you doing? It turned out the guy was memorizing everything the guy would say and go back and repeat it to the village. Your, our brains are capable of far more when we don't have phones. <laughs> or written language for that matter but um so so in that moment this is what we talked about last week is those oral traditions the traditions are passed on paul passed on he sells elsewhere follow my example as i follow christ one of the things he would say to timothy and the leaders of the church he'd not just say preach a good sermon he would say Preach a good sermon. Read the Old Testament publicly. Hey, you can read my letter out if, if that'd be helpful to you guys. Not knowing that it would be considered the New Testament. But he'd say, not only that, live your life in such a way that there's continuity between those words and the way you live. Your life is a Bible. So that happened in the first hundred years. But see, beyond that, did you know the apostles died? They wrote this stuff down. The apostles died. And when the apostles and their guys they were teaching were dealing with stuff, the world looked a certain way. It was first century Jewish context. And then they started going outside of Judaism into this Greek world that was like they think completely differently. And that's where they left it. But did you know the world changed a lot after that? Like shortly thereafter, so the church was persecuted pretty heavily by the Romans for about 300 years. That's one of the reasons we don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament is because Rome was just trying to destroy them. It wasn't super awesome to be a Christian then. Actually, it was incredibly awesome because it was so hard to be a Christian. Just saying. Um, not because it was fun to be hard, but, for it to be hard, but you had to find Jesus or it just wasn't going to work out. So in the year about 325, all, all of a sudden, Rome said, you know what? Let's all be Christians. And you'd think, wouldn't that be awesome? And it was awful. 
Why? Because now you have people, because the Roman, Roman president <laughs> said it's good to be Christians, like, I guess I'm a Christian too. And all of a sudden, people started, well, who is this Jesus? And they're thinking like these Greeks. And they're asking questions about Jesus that don't make sense. So what had to happen was it had to be a creed written where a bunch of the leaders of the church came together and said, this is who Jesus actually is. Then they did it again. Um, Man, I can't see this. Oh, Apostles' Creeds, a little bit later. We think most of the time it was for people getting baptized, for them to say out loud, what is it that you believe about who Jesus is? The next one, Constantinopolitan Creed, they're like, no, I don't think the Holy Spirit's really God. Well, why? And they're wrestling through that. Why? Because the Greek culture brought all these thought forms that were challenging and nobody, they they weren't answered in the New Testament. Why? Because the guys who wrote it weren't even thinking about the questions they're asking. So the next two creeds that came, uh, Athanasian Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon, were explaining what the Trinity is. Did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? So if you look, you know, Google for Trinity in the Bible, it doesn't exist. But is God Trinity? Yes. How do I know that? Tradition. In other words, these guys early on within the first four centuries, five centuries, had to wrestle with these Greeks, you know, this Western philosophy is going, well, that doesn't make any sense. Peter and Paul and these guys didn't care. They didn't care to make explanation. I don't know. Jesus told me he's the son of God. I'm in. I don't, I, they're okay with this mystery. But, but the Western culture is going, I, you got to explain it to me. So these guys are working to do that. And, and so at the first, yeah, the, the, those things are defi- defined. Then we had, we found this document in, in uh, 70, 70 or 100 AD that the Didache, this is how these people worshipped all over like Europe for a while. Then we saw, we had Ignatius of Antioch. We have his writings. If you want to see what it's like to be on your way to be martyred as being a Christian, read his letters. <laughs> so how to be faithful to Jesus when you're about to die. Uh, Irenaeus wrote against a number of heresies. Tertullian, Athanasius, awesome guy. There was a while that everyone was against him. He got kicked out of his own pulpit eight times because he wouldn't give up. No, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But the political powers were with the other guys for a while. Then you got uh, Basil the Great, his buddy Gregor of Nazianzus and Gregor of Nyssa all helped define what the Trinity, who the Holy Spirit is. John Chrysostom, the Easterns are still using. Augustine, did you know what you think about God much of what we think about God was because Augustine wrote it in the 400s. It's, and again, nobody would dispute this. Nobody on the planet would dispute this. This is not like my unique ideas. But because Augustine, who didn't want to become a Christian, he liked living an adulterous life. He, his famous phrase was, give me chastity, just not yet. <laughs> is the one who just fell in love with Jesus and one of the most brilliant minds, the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy considers him and Aristotle the two most brilliant minds of the ancient world. And then beyond that, in the 1200s in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux who writes about the love of God. He says the highest love is to love oneself for God's sake. I'm loving myself just because he does. It doesn't matter if I like me or not. Julian of Norwich, Revelations of Divine Love, 
greatest phrase ever, all shall be well, well and all manner of things shall be well. Thomas Akempis wrote this book um, called The Imitation of Christ that's been used, well, where's he at? About 600 years for people to know how to follow Jesus. Ignatius of Loyola put together a way of living that many of us have followed that have to do with just knowing how to live a life dedicated to Jesus altogether. Teresa of Avila gave just this gorgeous way of seeing God in the inner interiority of our souls. And she's just so plain spoken and, and commonsensical. Brother Lawrence talked about how he could wash dishes and meet the Lord Jesus in the deepest way imaginable. Therese of Lisieux struggled so much internally that she finally gave up and said, the only thing I can do is stay little before God. And so she created this thing called the Little Way and eventually the Catholic Church recognized her as one of the most influential people on the planet in Catholicism. Martin Luther is the first guy to translate the Bible into the language of his own people. Things changed for all of us forever because the printing press was happening. And all of a sudden, because of what he did, you and I can read the Bible in our own language. We've got John Calvin who wrote the Institutes. We've got John Bunyan. Everybody heard of Pilgrim's Progress? Second most sold book besides the Bible of anywhere. Of the, 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 the journey of following Jesus. And then Jonathan Edwards, super instrumental in the roots of Christianity in America. Guy who would just read a sermon, literally read the words, and people would fall on the ground under the power of the Spirit screaming. For the first great awakening. Then we have John Wesley who was part of another awakening here and in Britain. And we've not even gotten to three year, 300 years before we started. And I've skipped hundreds of people. Hundreds. Every one of these people you can read right now. Every one of them. Okay. So what is tradition? It's other people. They're knowing Jesus for the last 2,000 years. I just wanted to illustrate, guys, this is deep, powerful stuff. We have a stable, solid family history. Like, if I get crazy and run away from Jesus, it doesn't matter for you. We have a stable, solid history, family history in Jesus that's lasted Every kind of craziness, every kind of war, every kind of famine, every kind of pandemic. Okay, so why is it important? Why are other people and their knowing of Jesus important to us? The first one is just to ask, and I've asked this question already in the series, is how did you first learn about Jesus? Was it a book of the Bible was open. You've never heard a thing about Jesus. You walked into a room and, it, and there it is. And you thought, wow. Jesus exists. Never heard of him. I know a few people that first learned him through an experience. I found it's pretty rare. But they didn't really know what was going on until they talked to somebody else about it. I don't... There's some people who've reasoned them way, their way up to that there should be a God. But that he's the God who became one of us died, happened to live in the Middle East at this particular time and place. I don't, I don't particularly know anybody's reason their way. But I do remember being in my grandparents' house. 
and what it felt like when they prayed. I do remember, you know, this is my history, my parents taking me to church. Uh, Maverick City just dropped a new album, in case you want to look. Don't look now, it'll still be there after the service. <laughs> Spotify won't disappear. But there's, it's like the second or third song, I don't remember what it is. But they break into an old charismatic tune. And I just started to melt when I heard it. Because it brought back the little church in Eldridge, Iowa. Of about 40 people. Where there is weird people in this church. <laughs> and I don't, still don't know what they did with their lives and how they made a living. And, but Jesus would walk with us. Jesus would meet us. That's my tradition. of Other people and their knowledge of Jesus, their experience of Jesus, inviting me into this family history. And then I got to read the Bible for myself, right? I got to start experiencing Jesus for myself. But one of the most important things I've found for any of, this is why tradition is so absolutely critical, is most of us enter faith through tradition. Why else would Jesus leave us on this earth right now, right? It's because he wants to show us what he's like. Show the world show, show the world what it looks like. To li- if you live in concert with Jesus, <laughs> I was thinking about a great illustration of, you know, there's a time like, I want to do whatever I want. I want to sin whenever I want. To me, that's a like, a lot like going into a porta potty and saying, I can stare down that hole as long as I want. I could jump in there if I wanted to. You don't tell me what to do. And Jesus is so kind. He's like, I respect your agency. <laughs> Dive in. Sin's just awful. Because Jesus knows how to live. So tradition's so critical. Another one is this crazy. Who wrote the scriptures? Who wrote the Bible? Yeah, our brothers and sisters wrote the Bible. That oral tradition, those apostles we talked about, they're just people like us. Now we know they have a unique place in history. We talked about it last week. Firsthand with Jesus himself. And they have the Holy Spirit guiding the writing. That's why I think it's even more legit that Matthew didn't start writing his gospel for about 30 years after Jesus was resurrected. He had time to think. He had time to go, what really mattered? Was it the time that Jesus ordered falafels? Or when he cast the demon out? I mean, when you start to really dig into the gospels, they are works of genius. They are works of genius. These guys thought in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the memory of Jesus, the smell of Jesus on them as they wrote these words. So it's incredibly important that tradition's important because that's where the scriptures came from. And not only it's where they came from, it's tradition, it's what was passed down that interprets the scriptures. Does that make sense? Here's a little rule of thumb. If someone's giving you an interpretation of Scripture no one's ever heard ever, it's probably wrong. 
seriously? God's not revealing new things? No, He is in the sense that He's reapplying what's always true into new contexts all the time. So sometimes it feels super true. And if it's really the Holy Spirit, it will feel very new to you. I'll tell you this, God's messing with me personally about being in Christ. That I just can't screw this thing up. I can't sin my way out of being in Christ. That's going to mess with some, some heads because it's messing with mine. I'm like, can I sin my way? He's forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future. What is happening? It's messing with my head. I read it a long time ago. But he's messing with my head. But that doesn't mean it's new. That's why tradition's so important. Did you know that virtually every question that we deal with today has been answered by someone who wrote about it years, maybe a thousand years ago? Not all of them. Like how to, you know, how to use your phone. <laughs> but the challenge is, C.S. Lewis said there's this phrase about interpretation. He said we have something we call chronological snobbery. We humans always think we're the smartest most important people who have ever lived. <laughs> I mean, Plato, Socrates, no iPhone, morons. <laughs> right? These guys don't know what they're talking about. They never had any problems like we have. Like the Vandal hordes coming from the north to burn everything to the ground. We can, we, we can kind of be kind of full of ourselves a little bit, right? See, I like this. At first it's offensive and then it's comforting. At first it's like, well, I'm important. Yeah, you are. Just not as important as you think. And you can just kind of settle back and go, oh, Jesus has handled this before. I do not have to freak out. I've got a stable family history that has not only given us scripture, but then helps me to apply scripture in different ways. I mean, you think, you think this is hard. When, when, when Constantine finally said Christianity was legal, a huge division in the church was, okay, for the people who denied Jesus under persecution, can they come back in? It was a deal, man. It was a big deal called the Donatist Controversy. But that'd be kind of hard, right? What if you and your family were beaten for staying faithful to Jesus? This guy got off scot-free. Now it's legal. Do we let him back in? He didn't pay a price. And true to the mercy of God, the church said, yeah, we let him back in. It's mercy. It's mercy. That fundamentally informs how we think about what we're doing now. But are there any things that have been happening in the last two years that had to do with whether you're in or out? That may have been a little more, little less intense than I chose to deny Jesus when my life was threatened. I mean, I always feel weird wearing a mask, but I'm not really denying Jesus and my life being threatened over it, right? My social awkwardness, Jesus can handle. We've been here. We've been here before. Tradition's so important because we learn about Jesus through it. Gave us the scriptures and helps us interpret the scriptures. So what are the limits? If all I have is other people's knowing Jesus, even for 2,000 years, if 
that's all I have. What happens to me? Well, the first thing with scripture is it's a great way to start a cult. So I, I can tell you, this is, this is one, two, three, your, 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 your easy steps to your very own cult. Just eliminate scripture, get with your favorite friends and agree with each other all the time. You'll get there eventually. Trust me. If you have no experience, do you know you can't experience Jesus through someone else? This is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's why it's so disorienting, especially when you go through those, those life-defining moments, maybe from maybe like a, I don't know, 14 or 15 through your mid-20s these days of differentiating. Even if you had a strong Christian family, you have to be able to differentiate and have your own experience of Jesus. You have to. And most likely, it's going to look really different. And how do you know if it's okay? Well, we've got tradition and scripture to help us. And reason, if we're doing it healthily. And if we don't have any reason with tradition, we can get into some weird spaces, man. Some really, really weird spaces that are not actually conversant with the world that actually exists around us. Have you ever met a group of people that are like so convinced about this or that? You're like, where do you live? What do you do with your time? Have you been outside like in a while? Go to Tulsa State Fair. You'll know who I'm talking about. Sorry, that wasn't very nice. But it's just, it's, you're always like, man, I think you don't want to come out for the fair. This is really weird, man. I think you've been, you've been eating those Krispy Kreme things all week, all year. So I'm getting, digging a hole. But, but I think I'm funny. I will say a state fair is the only place I've been goosed. I mean, like, Someone just grabbed my rear end on this. Like, where am I? What is happening? I'm totally never coming back here. <laughs> Can I say that? That was awesome. Shane just said, I thought you were someone else. <laughs> well played, bro. That was awesome. Well played. <laughs> I'll defend you to my death, man. That was worth every bit of the laugh you get. You hear that? <laughs> so none of these things we do by themselves. We've got to have this fully orbed way of knowing Jesus. So tradition by itself is not enough. It is not enough. Okay, so summary. Tradition, what is it? It's the idea of other people's knowledge of Jesus. Other people besides me have seen an aspect of Jesus I have not. And as much as I want to believe I know there, everything there is to know about Jesus, I will never be on top of that. I will never be on top of that. But with other people, I'm going to know more. I'm going to know more than I did by myself. And for the last 2,000 years, guys, so many difficult problems have been addressed by our brothers and sisters over the last 2,000 years. And we actually have access to everything they've written. Not everything, but a lot of it. That we can go, I don't know what to think about Jesus and his two natures. You ever thought about that? Jesus is human and divine. How's that work with his nature? Did you know that was totally worked out in the late 400s? So if this is what we think it is, and all the church fathers got to get it, yeah, we're in, that's good. Let's make a creed. 
And Paul says it this way, God's household, the church, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here's what's so fun. If someone's not in fellowship with the church, don't worry what they think Scripture says. They don't know what they're talking about. The church, you, me, brother, sister, interprets the Scriptures. In fact, it's no use arguing. It's no use arguing. Because if you're not in the family, you don't have the Spirit. You don't have the experience. You don't have the reasoning capacities in the sense of being led by a king who lives inside of me. So it's not even worth getting in a big shouting match about Scripture if someone's not choosing to be in the family. Does that make sense? It just doesn't make sense. Now we can talk about it. I love to talk about it. Is it, is it a reliable document? Is there, is it, oh man, it's so fun because it's extremely reliable historically. But we don't need to get in a shouting match about interpretation. It's the church that's the pillar of the foundation of the truth. And how does it work? Well, it works like this. 2 Timothy 2.2 2. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses is trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That has been going on in unbroken succession for 2,000 years. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what it is. That is a miracle that the witness through great, great difficulty and also just tedium and boredom has been passed on generation after generation so that the crazy part is, have you ever run into a Christian on the other side of the globe and you're like, I know you. Have you ever had that experience? It's the weirdest thing in the world. I've been in multiple countries where I'm like, I know you. I was at a coffee shop in Wichita, Kansas yesterday. Don't have time to tell you why. Writing this sermon. And this this couple girls sat near me and they just started smiling. I was like, they know Jesus. It was just that simple. I just could feel it. It was, ah, it was so cool. So tradition works in this passing on and interpreting the scriptures. It's always under the scriptures. But it's vital. Why? It's because most of us, this is the first way we learned about Jesus was through others. The, the, the scriptures came from tradition and the, the tra- tradition helps us to interpret scripture. The limits, don't start a cult, please. <laughs> you can't experience Jesus through someone else and it's got to be rooted in the real world. So what do we do with all this? I know I'm downloading a lot of data on you. I know that. This goes against every instinct I have for sermon writing. Um, but I, I, I was so grateful for the dream I had last night. And what Chris had told me is like, you've got to go deep. And I, I mentioned this last week. Like, the, the, being a Christian in American society used to be like playing a pickup basketball game. And if you're pretty decent, you could shoot it. We all just got thrown into the NBA. And it's really hard pivot for us who've been on both sides of this cultural change. But we're in the NBA. That world is gone. Pick up basketball's over. You have got to go deep with your faith. You've got to do it. But if this is true, what else would we want to do? It's a source of joy and meaning. Life. Jesus is always in me. So when I wake up and I feel... I, you ever woke up this way? I forgot to do something and I don't know what it is. I can go to Jesus right then. Jesus, did I? And if you're not going to tell me, do you love me anyways? I got this, son. I'm your hiding place. I'm your place of refuge. 
your soul is only going to fully be at rest in me in Psalm 62. Just grab a scripture right then and look at it. Oh, yeah, this is true. This is true. So how to respond to this? First, let's be humble. Wanna? 99% of what's happened on the earth with Jesus had nothing to do with our lives. We're one percenters. Strangely enough, there's a cult called the one percenters, but I won't even talk about that. That's like, so nobody quote me on that. <laughs> Let's be humble. Let's not just go, well, I saw this guy say this on YouTube, so in your face, I know what's going on. You know what I'm saying, right? But I read this article by this guy. Let's be humble. And say, I probably don't know what's going on most of the time. You know, it sounds a lot like being a child. But I know my dad. He'll probably tell me. And my dad could beat up your dad. (laughs) Another one is get into community. Something that's real deception. And it's one I live with particularly because I'm an introvert. I was under the impression that if I prayed and read the Bible by myself every morning, everything's going to be okay. And it's not true. I can't even understand the Bible that accurately. I can understand some of it. And the most important stuff, I can understand. But how to live it and apply it in some of these problematic passages and stuff... I need the community of God. I need the community of God. I need to see not just data. I know a lot of data, but I need to see Jerry Lout live his life and go, I want to end like this guy's going. To see Carol walk through with her husband going to meet Jesus and have been a pastor's wife her whole life and serve people. I need to see that. Because I want to know what's true and how to live a life faithful to Jesus. I gotta be in the community. I gotta be at the voice of tradition, other people's experience of Jesus. And the other one, I like this phrase, is listen to the dead guys. I had the privilege of spending three days with Eugene Peterson up at his little retreat with my buddy Daniel Grothy. And, uh, and when I, I asked him the question, I said, Eugene, who would you recommend reread? And he said, stick with the dead guys. And what he meant by that was this is if it lasted 500 years, he might have had something to say. That doesn't mean I don't read current stuff. But, but Lewis would say, his discipline was this, for every new book I read, I read an old one. Why? Because I'm just trying to be smart. I'm trying to be wise. So I even gave you a little list of dead guys. This is a very short one. Okay? That you could read in between... Your forays onto YouTube. Read YouTube or watch it and then look up the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Memorize them. Why? Because we've been reciting them for almost, well, 1,700 years. Of This is what we believe, Jesus, who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus in short form. Did you know every Christian on the planet agrees to those things? Are they as strong as Scripture? No, Scripture is still more important, but they're really important. Here's another good one. St. Augustine, 
the guy who's second, one of the top two minds in the ancient world according to the latest Oxford Dictionary of Western Philosophy. You'll read Augustine. He wrote this in like late 400s. And you'll think, well, how could that apply to my life? And you'll read it and go, I am this guy. I am this guy. This guy's struggling with his own sinfulness. And, and then, but then he gets these moments where he meets Jesus and the Holy Spirit and he just goes off into this beautiful language. Late have I loved thee. He's the guy who said, narrow is the mansion of my soul. Come thou and fill it. Said, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. He's a guy who'd experienced all kinds of crazy, one of the smartest guys out there. And I couldn't, couldn't get any rest till I met Jesus. Another one, and this guy, this is a kind of a new guy, 400 years old. Practice of the Presence of God, Brother Lawrence. Very easy to read. Short little book of just, this book is proof you, it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your job is. You can be in the unmitigated presence of Jesus anywhere, anytime. That guy washed dishes and repaired shoes his entire life. And he wrote a book that lasted 400 years to help us know how to encounter Jesus. Isn't that cool? All right, let's stand together. We're going to continue to, uh, I think we just started doing this again, putting all these slides online along with uh, the podcast resources and whatnot, if you want to look back through any of that. Uh, I know this is a little on the heady side of things. I just feel like it's super important. And the way I know it's super important is I've watched us um, flounder a bit not knowing these things. It, it, it doesn't help us to not know these things. If you can just remember, okay, if you want to say just in short, Short form, what is tradition? Other people. For the last two seconds, over-deliver. Thank you. A plus, Charlie Steele. Let's say it again. Tradition is just two words. That was very mumbly. Tradition is? Yeah, we need other people. We need other people, and not just us, but our whole stable family history that we have access, access to right now. So let's pray together. Father, (laughs) Jesus, you said you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we are committing the building of your church to you. To you. We love you. Thank you that we are in safe hands. Thank you that history proves to us everything is going to be okay. Because you said the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And we have all kinds of data to show that that has actually happened. That has actually happened. That there's billions of people on this planet now bowing their knee to Jesus. 2,000 years later. Even with all the voices screaming against and trying to stamp you out. Here we are, Lord. So Jesus, we say... Build your church. We're your church. Form us, Lord. Make us look like your son, Jesus. Will you lead us into the unity of faith? Lead us into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God that we might become mature 
and that we wouldn't be blown around by every new wind of doctrine or teaching, but instead speaking the truth in love. We've been all things grow up into you, Jesus, you who are the head that causes the growth, and then fit us within your body, within this community, in the places you see work just the best, because we're your handiwork, your workmanship. We ask you this through the might of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.